Earlier this week, I had the chance to sit down with one of the giants in our industry, a guy named Alexander LaPratt, who's the co-owner of two neighborhood restaurants here in New York City, Atrium Dumbo and a place called Beasts and Bottles. But before that, he worked at some of the finest restaurants in the country, including the French Laundry, Jean-Georges, Le Bernardin, Atera, and Danielle. He is a brilliant mind when it comes to wine, having won dozens of tasting competitions around the world. And P.S., he's a master sommelier, a distinction held by less than 300 people worldwide. He is as gracious as he is knowledgeable, and I'm thrilled to be able to bring you this in-depth conversation all about what it takes to be a restaurant owner in this day and age. So, if you're struggling to get your restaurant up off the ground, or if you're considering finally opening a place of your own, you do not want to miss this episode. Be warned, it's a long one, nearly two hours in all, but I promise you there are some real gems in here. And if you stick around all the way to the end, you'll be rewarded with Alex's hilarious story of how he did finally pass his MS exam. Stick around. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. So normally each week I choose a different topic, we explore that topic, we pick it apart. Hopefully by the end we come across with some uh, useful takeaways uh, that we can apply to our own business. Uh, but this week I'm actually sitting down to chat with Alexander LaPratt, master sommelier and uh, the co-owner of two restaurants here in Brooklyn, uh, where I live, uh, Atrium Dumbo and Beasts and Bottles. Alex, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit with me this morning. Thanks for having me, Chip. So, Alex, you have one of, uh, one of the most impressive uh, resumes of anyone I know in the industry. So... Um, I want to start there. Can you talk a little bit about uh, where you've worked? Walk us uh, through your journey a little bit. Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, it's interesting. Started in Detroit, just uh, kind of a small town uh, farm boy, as it were, uh, literally. Uh, moved to the big city, worked through restaurants, started my first job at a uh, Big Boy at the age of 16 after being a grocery bagger. Have you seen Big Boy? It's like uh, Austin Powers. No. With the, <laughs> It's like a family concept, you know, salad bar, shakes, kind of burgers, you know, something like a Slim Jim, basically. It's kind of like a, you know, now that I look back on it, a Slim Jim's kind of like a Cubano sandwich, you know, it's like, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I never thought of that. Anyhow, uh, but as a, as a waiter, you're making like desserts and shakes and busting your own tables and stuff like that. I, uh, yeah, I started as a waiter and then, uh, you know, I did everything though. I dishwashed when they needed and, you know, other things, but, um, by the time I was 18, then in Michigan, you can serve alcohol. I moved on to uh, my next big step, which was uh, Papa Vino's, which is kind of like an olive garden with no tablecloths. And uh, that was that was interesting. You know, I had my first Chianti there. I read my Wine for Dummies there to try to understand how to uh, increase check averages to talk about that mystifying subject of wine. Uh, 
you know, which I, I had really never experienced and I, I had, I had no idea about it. It wasn't part of my family's culture by any stretch. So started with wine for dummies, very confusing book. It was intense, a lot of information, uh, moved on from there, basically just through persistence. I just kept going and applying and calling, uh, a fine dining restaurant with a bunch of nice cars out front. Um, and I, I didn't know too much about it, but eventually they, they took an interview with me and I had this great interview with the assistant GM at the time. And I thought it was very, very slick and very charming. Um, but I actually had zero knowledge. Um, I probably had misinformation for, for knowledge. And so anyhow, they didn't call me back. So I just kept calling, kept going again. I figured if it worked to get the interview. Um, and eventually I think they got really desperate and they hired me and I was, uh, 19. And this was a restaurant called Morales and Michigan Bistro. And what I didn't realize, this was their flagship fine dining restaurant. They had four other in the, in the, uh, in the market. They had seven uh, family concepts in like, I don't know, 25 delis or something like that. But the beverage director for the group happened to be the first U.S. female master sommelier. And her office was directly above. And that was Madeline Trafon, uh, who anybody in Michigan that works in wine... Uh, has uh, definitely been, uh, you know, impacted by her or come across her. Or, I mean, she's a major, major figure in uh, in this industry. I mean, it was really blind luck. But that kind of shaped the rest of what was to come for me. So then, what did you? Uh, what was your first position there in the restaurant? You know, luckily I started as a server, but I, mean, I had so much to learn. I really did. I had I had no idea. I remember. I mean, there's so many gems that I remember. I remember uh, Madeline would come down and uh, I wasn't old enough to taste the wine. So she would do like a wine tasting it lineup or something like that. And I'd smell it and I'd be reading about it. And then I would say something crazy like, um, you know, this is Beaujolais. And these are the reasons why. Not not even knowing what that was. And then it's like Chateauneuf de Pop. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like interesting. And then uh, I remember a lot of the clientele were affluent, much, much older, uh, really well cultured. I remember one older gentleman was like, it's not Willamette, it's Willamette, damn it. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. I've, I, I share that with everyone that, that has trouble pronouncing that word. But, um, you know, and then I remember taking uh, like my first eye-opening sip of wine was shared with me by a, a server there who was older. Uh, his name was David Douglas, and he knew a good amount about wine. And he shared with me a Penfold's Bin 387. It's a Shiraz Cabernet blend. And it's not a it's not a remarkable wine in many facets, you know, when you compare it to more limited or, or, or celebrated or in-demand wines. But uh, it was an eye-opener for me, and that was the first glass that I was like, there may be something to this wine thing. Uh, it's pretty tasty. And, and, and so, you know, I just kept coming back to food and wine uh, after that. That was... Uh, that was it. That was the mark, really. So at that point, was it pretty clear that, you know, food and wine, hospitality was going to be your future, was going to be the trajectory? You know, I was looking at more as as kind of a money generating uh, kind of thing. And I think most people enter this industry because that, uh, you know, there's a low uh, barrier of entry and usually you can make a very uh, decent amount of money from the beginning. Um so you don't have to really build up. So it's great for students, which I was, um, or people that just move or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I think that situation is great. But uh, I was actually, I was putting myself through college uh, and I was a uh, major in um, biology and a minor in chemistry. So I was, I was planning pre-med, uh, but I just kept coming back to it. 
uh, my attention span is very uh, kind of all over the place. So I'll, I'll find a subject that I, I, I get really into and then I'll move on to something else. But I kept coming back to wine and spending a lot of time studying it. And it was just super fascinating because I think, you know, for me, it's a true humanity. And, um, you know, it, it incorporates so many other things that are beautiful about, you know, the world and, and, and you know, in a sad time where we're, you know, humans are destroying the planet and all of that. We do have a lot of beautiful things. And I think, um, you know, art and music and culture and language and, and all of, you know, food, uh, wine covers all of those. And, um, you know, so I keep coming back to it because it's, it's really fascinating. And it's a cool time to be uh, to be in the wine world, uh, certainly over the last 20 years or so, where uh, wine culture here in America has certainly exploded. You know, certainly it was uh, part of the, the kind of the European culture for, you know, years and years in other parts of the world, but not in America. And certainly that's, um, that's become more present now as you've been in the industry. Yeah, hundred percent. Things have changed dramatically. Um, I'm also a little bit insulated because, uh, after working through the best restaurants in Michigan, um, you know, I met, uh, Raj Parr from, um, the Mina group. He was the wine director there and he's, he's, you know, one of the finest sommeliers in the world. Um, and, and what a, a real genuine, nice, nice person all, all around. Um, and he said, look, Alex, you, you, you know, it's time for you to move on. This market, uh, you know, has a limited amount of opportunity. You should, you should really come out to San Francisco. It's a lifestyle. I remember those were his direct words. He was saying, uh, it's a lifestyle, you know, and I didn't really know what that meant, but, uh, I got excited about it because he was important and, uh, I respected him and still do. And so I was like, I'm, I want to go to San Francisco. <laughs> so then how old were you then when you, when you moved out there? I was probably 23 or four. Let me see. No, I guess I was older, maybe 26, 25, 26. And so then were you in Detroit working in restaurants yeah. for all that time and then decided to make the jump out west? Yeah. So I worked through a bunch of uh, really uh, fine dining restaurants in, in Michigan, uh, everything from like mafia owned Italian, full tuxedo um, to French <laughs> table side, full tuxedo, you know, carving Chateaubriands. You know, I was a manager for a while at McCormick and Schmick's. The, uh, you know, the, the restaurant chain, I, uh, I worked at a, a chef's tasting menu with like, um, you know, this, inc uh, like all these awards for architecture and design that was millions of dollars that could never be a successful business on its own. But it was, um, it was really put together by a, a menu, you know, uh, an offshoot of the car manufacturing process. Uh, to um, entertain clients when they're in the in the market, and then eventually, when when I met Raj, Michael Mina came to town, and the MGM Grand Casino opened two restaurants side by side. So they did all these interviews, kind of like open call. So you show up, and then it's like uh, all these. Uh, at the time, it was like the CEO. Well, he's now the, the president, um, but uh, like the president, vice president, uh, and and a few other key roles and, and they're interviewing you and asking you all these questions. Uh, and I knew a good amount by then, you know, and I, and I, I had been honing my skills. Uh, I remember one of those restaurant jobs, it was a French, uh, fine, uh, fine dining table side service, full tuxedo, you know, with like caviar and Chateau de Cam and all these things. The chef had just come back uh, from Europe. He had stashed at French laundry in California. And then he went to Europe. He worked at, uh, Michel Bra and, and a few other in Paris. Uh, you know, these are these are very 
um, acclaimed restaurants with um, progressive chefs uh, doing fantastic food. But I didn't understand anything even on his menu. And I had already been in the industry for, you know, like eight years. So I said, look, I want to know more what this is. You know, I want to know what a brandad is. I remember that specifically. What What's a brandad? And um, so he suggested La Russe's Gastronomique. So I still have it. It's over there on the bookshelf. But I would carry it with me to work every day. It's basically an encyclopedia. It's like the Webster's Dictionary I would be carrying with me. It's It looks really weird. But every time I would get there, I would look through the menu. Um, it wasn't long. And I would look at uh, what these are, what these preparations are, you know, because I don't I don't know, you know, who's got access to that at, as a young man growing up with humble beginnings, you know. So um, anyhow, so I went to this interview. They ended up saying, look, you've got a lot of skills. We don't want you as a server. We want you as a uh, what they call a captain. Basically, it's like a maitre d' role between both restaurants. And then and then I met Raj. And, and after working there for a couple of years, he said, let's go to San Francisco. I said, I would love to. Michael Mina at that time had two stars in San Francisco, but they had one of the greatest wine teams uh, and one of the finest wine lists uh, in the country by, by far. And I, a lot of that has to do with uh, Raj and, and the guys at uh, Mina, you know, um, and they were able to sell it, which also is impressive. They had the clientele, but nothing really opened up. So I remember one night I'm working at the casino. I had a guy come down from Canada. He was there and he was visiting and he was a sommelier at the Windsor Casino, which is just across the Ambassador Bridge from Detroit. And I would go to Windsor because at that at that time, uh, you know, you could drink when you were younger. You could go to, you know, gentlemen's clubs. You can go to the casino. You know, it's kind of like Pinocchio's Island. What, what was that? Pleasure <laughs> Island. Yeah. So Windsor was that for a young man in Detroit. Um, but anyhow, I took care of him that night and I was telling him I saw this job at the French Laundry that was posted uh, and he should apply. And he's like, that's ridiculous. I'm a Canadian citizen, first of all. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. He's like, but you should apply. And I said, well, why would they want me? It's, you know, I'm nobody. Uh, but I went home. I drank three Manhattans. I wrote this really passionate letter, uh, and, you know, to Thomas Keller and I sent it. And then, you know, the rest was was kind of history. And so that's then how you wound up out in the Bay Area. That's correct. So what did you do? Uh, so you get out there to French Laundry, and what were you doing there? What did you... <laughs> so funny you should ask, Chip. <laughs> so one of the things for me has always been, you know, this propelled my career forward, is always to take uh, a step back to make a large leap forward. Um, you know, and I think humility is key for hospitality, but... Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people these days, and they, these are just biases that I've seen, um, are afraid to put in the work or maybe they just think they, they deserve it already. But when I flew out there, I was making 70, about 70000 a year in the Midwest and I had a condo and, and you know, a bunch of furniture and everything and, and a girlfriend. Um, and I was like, look, we're, we're going to put all this stuff in storage. You're going to move back in with your mom and I'm going to drive across the country and uh, rent a room in North Napa. And what they offered me was a position after all these interviews, I did like five interviews. I bought the two best suits, two best shirts, best ties, flew across the country, did these interviews. And they said, look, we can't see you as being a sommelier. We're going to offer you a food running position. And I said, great. What's that? And they said, we well, are going to take food that the chef puts on the plate and you're going to take it to the guests and you're going to tell them what's on it. Famously, everybody at a uh, French laundry in per se starts as a kitchen server and then works their way up from there. Yeah. So that was $10 an hour. And I said, all right, thank you. Uh, shocked, slightly insulted, but 
I knew it was a, one of the greatest restaurants in the world, right? And uh, I said, let me think about it. And I just slept on it for two nights. And then I was like, I'll do it. So when I got there, that's what I was doing. But the thing was that separated me. Um, I wasn't like the most popular or or whatever. And maybe I'm a little awkward. But um, I basically did all the jobs that nobody wanted to do. So anytime they needed help restocking the cellar or cleaning or, you know, just basically stuff you're like, I don't really feel like doing that. I would jump on it. I would attack it like voraciously, like I'll do it. Pick me. Um, and I just did that. I basically bled TFL blue, uh, for a year (laughs) almost. Uh, like I skipped my vacations to reorganize the cellar, all these things. And eventually they created a position that they never had at French laundry. Um, but they had it per se already because of the way per se is, uh, situated the cellars, um, a couple floors down. Uh, so they had a seller assistant or a seller sommelier. Anyhow, they created that position. They said, Alex, we created this position just for you. Would you like it? Give me a raise. And I spent all my time in the cellar at that point, which was which was fantastic. So that's really interesting because you come out there and I, I assume you've got way more wine knowledge and, uh, dare I say, more ambition than a lot of the other people that you were working beside. And so you jump at these opportunities. True. You start getting access to, you know, to a seller like that. So you start learning yeah. what, how things are uh, inventory. You start understanding wine cost, how, how you cost it all out, how you manage a program. Yeah. Is that some of the stuff that you were starting to get even at that early stage? Well, I got really lucky um, because there was a, the, the wine team was in transition when I got there. Between the time of doing my phone interviews and that first flyout interview, the wine director had changed. Uh, they brought in a new wine director, but he was a tool. So he, he didn't, he broke a <laughs> bottle of Screaming Eagle on the floor, which, uh, of the cellar. And then, um, in addition, he, uh, he, he was, he didn't have the hospitality, um, uh, with the guests. And so he didn't last very long at all. So he, he was removed quickly. Um, and so what happened was a captain there, Dennis Kelly, uh, moved into this role and he had never really done it before, but he had been in the French laundry. Uh, and he had a lot of integrity. He was a super hard worker. Now, at the time, I just remember the nights that he would be there so late working with like Excel because our list was all Excel at that time. Um, and it's, you know, 24, 2500 selections. But he, he was such a, a kind person. And he's now a master sommelier also. And he, you know, he helped me a lot. I asked him, I said, look, Dennis, uh, he saw my ambition and he helped open some avenues to that. He, he put me in one of the best tasting groups in the, in the Valley. He said, look, if you want to taste, you can come taste with me. So I had um, in my tasting group, uh, Yoon Ha, who's a master sommelier, working for Corey Lee now as his wine director, uh, which, which is a three-star uh, at Ben New. Um, I had Jason Heller, uh, who is a super fantastic uh, sommelier and a, and a really gifted taster. Uh, Sir Lucero would be in, in that group. Um, Jeff Kruth, you know, from Guildsom would come for that group. Emily Wines. These are all masters now. I'm just sitting there tasting with all these future masters and, and our pursuit of that. And, and a lot of that's because of Dennis. But I, I highly recommend to a lot of students that come to me because I teach at the International Culinary Center. And they say, what, what do you recommend my next step is? I said, well, you don't have any actual experience. So you have to get experience. How do you get experience? when nobody wants to hire because you don't have experience. So my, my thoughts are always to volunteer. Now it's very tricky with labor laws and things like that. But I say take the, 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 you know, any position you can in the restaurant or wine shop with the best list, you know, best selection uh, and the best mentors. 
you know, and, and, and those two won't always be the same, but, um, and then touch the bottles because I knew that list and I knew those bottles better than the Psalms because I'm handling them all day. And all the competitions, all the lists that I write, all of those things, I still remember that list. And the thing was, it wasn't like, you know, we're just going to choose this lip haphazard, or list haphazardly. Um, it was a fantastic lineage of sommeliers who put that program together. These are the best producers in the world. And it was super well balanced. So just from that list, I've got, you know, 20, you know 2,600 at least, maybe 3,000 different producers that are at the top of their game uh, across the world that I'm already very familiar with. So, I mean, that was that was absolutely key. Already just in these uh, few minutes that we've been talking, uh, my takeaway here uh, is kind of about this, the journey, right, and, and putting in your dues, paying your dues, putting in your time. I think it's, uh, I've been in the industry for 20 years now, uh, 17 of those here in New York City, and it's something that I see is, uh, is being lost a little bit. Um, certainly, as, um, uh, as I see cooks coming to the city, um, I, I hear chefs talking about it all the time. You know, cook once they come to the city and they just they think they deserve to be a sous chef. They're, they think they're ready sure. for the keys to the kingdom. Um, I see this happening a lot with the with the wine world that uh, back when I came to the city 17 years ago, that was what you did. You were a seller rat. You, you learned how to totally. stock, how to check things in, how to you know how to take orders and confirm that uh, the cases got there. And, you know, thereby you end up tasting great stuff. You end up, you know, running stuff up and down from the, the cellar to the floor. And uh, your payment for that is, you know, an ounce of these extraordinary wines that you wouldn't otherwise get a chance to taste. And I think it's something that's being lost. Uh, I'm seeing other people uh, now come up, you know, younger people coming out, getting their sommelier certifications, and they're just looking for some jobs. True. It's like, what well, you don't know, you know, you've got a list of 800 bottles. You, you don't know 600 of them. How can yeah. you possibly sell them credibly? Or, or less. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's tricky, you know, and I, I think that... Um, I think I think as we become more progressive um, with our labor laws and that environment of raising minimum wage and protecting employees, um, we also have closed that door. And the reason why is because now to be a stage, you have to get paid. And it's like, as a small business owner, you know, which this podcast is focused on, uh, you know, we we can't afford to pay someone with no knowledge that brings zero to the table to teach them. I don't, I don't have that kind of, you know, just disposable income or time. Right. Yeah. It's, I think a, a bigger question of how do you, you know, how do you cultivate the right kind of staff who, who want to go above and beyond? Like you had said, you know, doors were open to you. Opportunities were given to you specifically because you went above and beyond and you did the stuff that nobody else wanted to do. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation, um, which I want to loop back to as we, sure. you know, as we get later in your career, uh, what you're doing now owning, but, uh, so you're out in, uh, you're out in Napa. Yeah. You're at French Laundry. How long were you at French Laundry before you left? Oh, like two and a half years, probably. Okay. And then, so from Napa, you came to New York? Yep. Because now you've been in New York for how many years? Uh, November 1st, 2009. So November 1st, it'll be 10 years. Dude, we're coming up on 10 years. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Ten, and then you're a real retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> so then what brought you out here to New York? Why, uh, why make the jump? Oh, uh, well... You know, the thing is, uh, I've had so many doors that I've tried to walk through that have been closed. I've had so many people be like, you'll never make it as a sommelier. You'll never be a master sommelier. If we want a sommelier, we'll get a real sommelier. At the French Laundry, there was a GM, uh, super French, didn't like the way I looked, didn't like me, or whatever. He would never see me as a som, a full-time som. Uh, I passed my advanced uh, sommelier exam on the first try. Um, I knew a, a ton about that list. 
you know, I knew all the people there. Um, but he just, he just didn't want to give me that opportunity. So Dennis was like, look, you know, I would do offsites, which was great. You know, I did, I did offsites at Screaming Eagle. I did uh, Bond, uh, Harlan, uh, Peter Michael. I got to go to all these exclusive places and, and, and perform wine service. And I would do luncheons sometimes. Um, but you know, was I a world-class sommelier? No, I needed the, the floor experience to get there. Um, but he was never going to give it to me. So that door was closed and no matter what I did, I couldn't open it. So uh, I wanted to keep progressing in my career and I talked to Dennis and, and we both agreed that, you know, Hey, Alex, it's time to, you know, spread your rings, your, uh, spread your wings, you know, and, uh, move on to a, a more lucrative market, you know, with more opportunities. So, uh, I sent my resume across the country, uh, interviewed at Charlie Trotter's at that time interviewed at La Bernadin. Um, it was funny. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's a lesson that I keep learning over and over again, but, uh, Daniel Jonas called me and he's a wine director for Daniel Blue. he's also, you know, the founder of La Palais, uh, as well as all these, you know, La Fat and, you know, all, all these different, uh, celebrations. He's one of New York's original sommeliers, uh, working at Mont Rocher. I had no idea who he was. And so he calls me and he says, look, you know, your resume came across my desk because I, I, I sent my resume to, to the three-star Danielle at the time for a SOM position. And uh, he said, uh, look, we're looking for a SOM. Your resume came uh, across uh, my desk. Uh, you know, it's for DB Bistro. Are you interested, basically? And I said, well, you know, hey, I really appreciate your call. Thanks so much. I'm going to pass if it's not for Danielle. You know, let me know if something opens up. <laughs> so that was that conversation. Then I talked to Dennis Dennis is like, hey, that's kind of a big deal. You should look at that. Uh, I did some research on him, and I'm like, wow, this guy's, you know, that's that's the big time. Yeah, he's the real deal. Right, you know, and um, man, I just, I don't know. I just wish I could be less or more humble than I already am. Like, you know, an open, I think it would be better. But um, you just don't know what you don't know, you know. And uh, anyhow, he called me back. Believe it or not, I don't think Daniel Johnson has ever called anyone twice in his life. <laughs> He's never had to. So I think I think it was confusing. He was like, who is this kid and why is he saying no to me? Uh, fair enough. And he, he called me back and he said, um, I, I don't think you understand. Uh, it's a buying position working for myself and Daniel Balloon in New York City as your first position. And that's pretty tough to beat. So I came out, I did an interview with everybody at Dynex after doing some floor trails and they offered me that position and I took it. So that's what brought you out here, Dynex. Yep. So then um, you're there for a while and you know, to, to give kind of the, the overview of, of your resume here in New York, I mean, you've worked for, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, all the, all the big ones out yeah. here. I mean, um, you know, Dynex group, Danielle Balud at the time was, you know, was three Michelin stars. Yeah. Uh, you worked at La Bernadin, three Michelin right. stars. You know, Jean-Georges, same thing. Uh, yep. You opened Atera, the wine program there. That's right. uh, two Michelin stars with yep. uh, Chef Matthew Leitner. Um, you kind of worked at a very high level here in New York and, and, and built your way up and had a great thing going. So I guess now is, um, is as good a time to any is say, like, what made you jump from all of that into owning your own place? Right. Well, when I made the move to French Laundry was when I, I really committed to making this my career. And from the beginning, I knew that there's a lifespan on how much you can run around with boxes, how many stairs you can run up and down, 
So the only way that I saw, because I, I knew career servers, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great life if you do it well and, and, and things like that. But wh what's the end game? You know, where, where, how are you going to retire from that? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and there's also a limit. You know, there, there, there is a level. And my thought since the beginning was I have to figure out as much about the financials and um, how this business works. Because that's the thing that they never show you. You can do the jobs, but you don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. And that's, I think that's also a part where a lot of people come up short. You know, I, and, and I would say it's a, you know, when we're talking about these positions where people have to, you know, or should uh, cut their teeth in the industry, you know, instead of jumping right to a, a leadership role, um, you know, it's the difference between theoretical knowledge and experience that leads to wisdom. You know what I mean? Because when you're in these situations, if you've never done it or haven't been around it, um, it's very it's very easy to make you know the wrong decision or not look at the big picture or not understand ramifications of decisions that you're making. But um, so I, I, the reason I worked through so many places was my thought was this: I want to learn what makes the best the best. What do they do well? How do they become the best? You know, and and it's different for everyone. You know, every one of those three-star Michelin chefs or you know, fantastic restaurateurs, is it their partnership? Is it their marketing? Is it their knowledge? Is it, you know, timing? Is it all of these things? And each one has different gems that have led to their success. And I tried to learn all those lessons while learning the financials. And so eventually, you know, my plan was to, to open my own place. So early on, you're already kind of thinking in those terms. Because um, I always say that whenever I have uh, servers or captains, uh, being offered a management position for the first time, and they asked me, oh, should I do it? I said, well, it depends. I mean, it's twice the hours for half the pay, and 100%. if that's something you want to do, but if you're playing the long game, that's how you get to see, uh, yeah. you understand labor costs. That's how you get to look at a P-mix and be able to read it and and, totally. and and start figuring out then what you do with that P-mix. That's how you look at a P&L, and you know, especially now you were talking about you know labor. Right now we're dealing with a labor shortage all over the city, uh -huh. and I think all over the country. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so... You know, as uh, minimum wage has gone up and, uh, and you know, kitchen payroll is, is through the roof, you know, being able to read that and understand that and understand what that does to the health and uh, the vibrancy of a, of a restaurant. If you want to learn all that because you eventually want to own your own place, then, yeah, there's only one way to do it, which is to take a management position. Right. You know, and, and, and that's really the debate I had for years. It's like, when does it become economically viable to make that transition from being a server or a floor sommelier, being a part of a tip pool, to holding a management position. You know, when does that make sense? And so I basically, <laughs> I came up with this thought, and it worked for me, uh, and it, it may not work for everyone, uh, but I just pushed and pushed uh, until I had enough skills that I could get paid somewhere close in a market that, that, that you know, could pay me somewhere close to what I was making. So when I made that transition, um, you know, I didn't lose that much money, but it is a gigantic, a gigantic jump. Yeah, it, it really is. So, um, so then I want to go back because you brought up a really interesting point because you've worked for all these different companies and all these different chefs yeah. and different organizations. And you said each of them, you wanted to be able to learn from each of them and take away something. So, okay. So you're a restaurant owner now, you're a business yeah. owner. What, uh, you know, can you look back and say, 
you know, what did they do so well at Dynex? What did they do so well at La Bernadette? What did totally. they do so well at, you know, what did Thomas Keller do so well? Can, can we get into the, the nitty gritty? And uh, because yeah. you've got inside knowledge of, of what they're doing, what they're doing well. Let's start with French Laundry okay. and, and Thomas Keller, that whole organization. What, um, what do they do really well that you stole from them? What, what's, what's kind of, what's the secret ingredient baked into their pie in your opinion? Wow. You know, uh, French Laundry, I, th- I mean, there's a lot of things that have led to Thomas's success and, you know, there's a lot of inspirational stories too about how he started. You know, he failed many, many times before. He, he got fired from most of his jobs. By all definitions, this is a guy down and out on his luck with literally no skills and no money. I mean, like, or limited skills. You know, he did some stages. But um, so often in this business, and I'm sure it's with any business, the only reason it doesn't fail is because you refuse to let it fail. Yeah, for sure. You know, 100%. It's not because you're right or, you you know, sometimes you get lucky. But the only reason these things work is because you refuse to let it fail. And sometimes just from force of will, you manage to push through. Grit, I think, is something that was uh, that's really key to the restaurant industry. And I think it's to you know, go back a little bit. That's something that I think is being lost. This idea of, you know, grit, totally. of, of perseverance, of persistence, of determination, uh, and, you know, how passion sprinkled over, over top of that, you know, leads to, to grit, that stick to So, so is that what it was? I mean, just persistence, well, you just kept after, kept after it. I mean, kind of, you know, I think that's part of it. I think he got really lucky with his original team. I mean, his first opportunity came from that. And I think anytime you're opening your first restaurant, that's the only way it's going to happen because you refuse to let that fail. And so basically he was sleeping in a tent on the side of Mount St. Helena. Well, luckily it's Napa, so life's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, when he was trying to open French Laundry and um, eventually got it all together. Uh, but he had a great team, One, uh, you know, with Laura Cunningham, who, who, who they're involved in a relationship. You know, she was had a lot of emotional intelligence. And so she put together a great team and she brought finesse to the dining room. And his uncompromising standards, uh, which, you know, is borderline with dictatorship in a kitchen, which you need uh, to a certain extent, because every single day, and I think Danny Meyer wrote about it uh, well, and he put it well in uh, Setting the Table, which, you know, is, is, a, is a classic in that library of hospitality. It's a book I recommend, I think, every third episode when we, when we oh, talk yeah. about this. At the end of each episode, <laughs> we do a continuing education, and I just... I think the the lessons in there. I mean, both his, you know, uh, you know, the memoir aspects of that book when he talks about, you know, cutting his teeth and, and bringing these uh, these restaurants to life are, are key. But totally. you know, the salt shaker theory. And That's the, it. Yeah, you know. So you know, someone keeps moving the sh- the salt shaker and he says, "Is it in the right place?" And then he moves it back. Every day, you're going to be tested. Your uh, standards, your integrity, what you believe in, will be tested. Uh, and you have to push that vision through. You have to be strong on that. There can't be a lot of, you know, uh, you know, gray there. It's black and white. This is okay. This is not okay. This is okay. This is not okay. And, uh, you know, that that's part of leadership. Um, so I think in the back of the house that worked really well. And what happened eventually was two things were born out of the finesse in the dining room and that uncompromising, you know, standard in the kitchen was the beginning of a culture. And what I think they do really, really well is a standard of excellence that, you know, it's a small environment with, you know, a lot of resources so they can have 
perfection or as close as you can get to it on a daily basis. And the great thing is everyone subscribes to that culture. They're all on the same page. And the French Laundry just celebrated 25 years, right? So 93 or 90, I think it was 90, no, it was 94 that it opened. And so um, over that time, they've continuously been getting better. And I try to tell people, you know, also the, the road to greatness isn't like one day I, I, you know, I take like a sabbatical and I come back and I'm great, or I did a stage and I'm great, or, you know, I, I, I went to the Burgundy and now I'm great. It's a little bit each day. If you get a little bit better every single day over the course of a career, you know, that's how you become great. And that's the story of the French Laundry because every day it's gotten a little bit better and it's kept that culture and it's source talent around the country, you know, because it brings attitude. It's hiring for the attitude. And, you know, that's on par with, with, you know, Danny Meyer or many other restaurateurs. And then they, they're giving them those skills. And so I think at French Laundry, I learned attention to detail and a commitment to excellence that, that before, you know, I, I hadn't really understood. It's funny when we, when I talk about uh, French Laundry, you know, there are things that get lost, you know, they just celebrated 25 years. They opened in 1994. Right. Um, they weren't really on the map until 1997 when Ruth Reichel names them uh, best restaurant in the country in, in Gourmet Magazine. And so that's a long three years. We talk yeah. about restaurants making it through a year, making it through two years, having the kind of fortitude um, to make it all the way through three years. I mean, I think there are a lot of uh, restaurant owners, hopefully, who are listening to this and understand how long a month is, yeah. how long a year is, and to, to have that kind of fortitude, that grit to really, uh, you know, that dedication to excellence and to keep pushing through for three years. It's, it's unbelievable to yeah. me. So, I agree. So then uh, let's talk about then like Dynex and Jean-Georges. And, sure. you know, wh- what were the, what's the secret recipe? What's, what's baked into the pie in those places? That Well, Dynex, a um, couple things. And Jean-Georges, they both have fantastic partners. So it's not like Daniel Blute on his own. You know what I mean? Uh, he was pulled out of uh, Le Cirque. Uh, he was, I mean... Out of all the three-star chefs, Danielle, in my opinion, has, is the most well-rounded for this industry. He knows wine. He knows it really well. He knows food really well. But he's also a, a tremendous leader. Uh, he's got charisma uh, for days. Uh, and he understands the PR as well, you know, uh, the public relations side. I've seen him stop meetings. We're in the middle of a P&L meeting. He stood up, gone over, pulled out someone's table, taken a picture, came back, and he's like, well, if you're going to pour a champagne toast, we need to get a slightly smaller glass so we can save one ounce per pour, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, that's a restaurateur. Doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> Not at all, you know, but that's, I mean, he's also visiting all of his restaurants in the area. I mean, he's got plenty, uh, but he had a fantastic partnership. And so money for him, in many ways, an investment, that was that was secured. Also, one thing that's absolutely genius that 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 is difficult in an urban market, you know, uh, now or at least a metropolis. He bought. He owns the building. He owns Danielle. Oh, I don't. I never realized that. Yeah, and that's really tough. There's only a few people, restaurateurs, that own because, as we all know, a lease has a lifespan. A restaurant has a lifespan. He owns, just like Thomas owns French Laundry. Right. You know, and so that changes the viewpoint that extends the timeline and you can really look at short-term you know successes you know like small successes uh over a long timeline and you can you know you can really make smart strategy to increase your profit and so that was one thing that really worked out well for him 
For those that uh, that are listening who uh, don't live or work in New York City, we're talking about Chef Daniel Boulud, uh, the the uh, the centerpiece to his entire uh, empire. The the restaurant group is called Dynex, uh, and the centerpiece is uh, Restaurant Danielle, which is on 65th Street uh, on the Upper East Side. And now he's got dozens of other restaurants: uh, Boulud Sud and Bar Boulud and uh, DB Bistro and Cafe Boulud, you know, all around the city. So that that's who we're talking about. That's what we're talking about here. Um, talk about Jean George when you worked for there. What's the yeah, What's the takeaway you know, there. Uh, he also has a, a very uh, smart business person, um, you know that 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 helps him with uh, domestic projects. He's branded himself across the country, and he's you know kind of franchised part of his brand, and he's kept those two things separate. Um, you look at you look at how these restaurants make money. One thing I learned also from French Laundry or, or you know, Danielle or, or, or Jean George is, you know, the flagship rarely pays the bills. Um, so even though it's one of the, you know, most uh, celebrated restaurants in the world and you have a super, super high per person average and you're selling priceless wines and creating, you know, these, these memorable experiences, uh, you're basically breaking even, maybe a little bit better um, at the end of the day. And that's always tough to realize because when you're looking at maybe doing 70 covers and you're making, you know, 80, a hundred thousand dollars a night and you're wondering what, you know, how is that place breaking even? Um, it's because that commitment to excellence, the labor, the, the plateware, the food, the product, uh, you know, all of that. So what they've done to make money is they use that as branding. They use that, uh, to be a symbol of their excellence uh, so that you can say, hey, this brand has integrity, but then they open up things that are more accessible and maybe that's not there. You know, Thomas opened Bouchon, not originally with that intended, you know, but then he expanded it and then he did the, the bakery, you know, and Jean-Georges franchised his brand. You know, Danielle has ballooned, uh, uh what is it? Um, what's his quick service? Uh, a piecery, a piecery blue. That's it. So he has a couple of those and he's done lesser concepts, you know, and it, and it, and it works. That's how it works. Yeah. You know, but uh, Jean-Georges, uh, a lot of uh, what has made him successful, um, you know, he's bringing uh, an approach to cuisine with Asian ingredients, which was good, uh, you know, and unheard of at the time. So that was a little bit revolutionary. Um, but in addition, fashion, you know, fashion is so important to Jean-Georges. Um, what things look like, you know and the environment, the aesthetics. Uh, it's a very modern look, it's sleek, and it's sexy. So that's something that I think his brand did really, really well, and he's very protective of uh, and um, reinforced over the years, and it's worked well for him. I think this is all really great stuff. There's so many different places we can go from here. Um, I'll, I'll go the natural way. So then, you're working in restaurants. What, um, what led you to open your own place, you know, vis-a-vis -vis all of this, you know, you took all of this here, everything you'd learned, all you'd gained. Why, um, so why did you make the jump when you made the jump to open your place? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I don't, I don't like having a boss specifically, <laughs> uh, at all, you know, but uh, luckily as a Psalm, you kind of have like, it's almost like you're a, 
I don't know, a special operative, you know, you're kind of like the special ops of the, of the army or whatever. You're, you're kind of like on your own, not a lot of accountability as long as you do your shit and then you come back and you're like, okay, you're, you're doing stuff that uh, no one knows anything about anyway. Yeah, exactly. They're like, okay, are you making money? Is everything working? Are people happy? Great. You keep doing that, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, kind of. Uh, not, not really, but it, it, to sum it up, um, I met, uh, my partners, uh, when I was working for Daniel Balloon, uh, DB Bistro and it really started with, with, uh, uh, the maitre d' there, Leslie Afray, and I was, I was the, uh, head sum. So we started looking when I was working, I worked through a few other restaurants, um, and, and she was still there. And, uh, we were talking about eventually opening our, our own restaurant because, we were already doing the jobs, you know, more or less besides the things that happened behind the scenes that, that we learned a lot about afterwards. Um, so we said, you know, let's start looking, you know, so we started looking in West Village and it was kind of like daydreaming a bit in a way, just like walking around and be like, okay, is there anything, you know, if we could open a restaurant here or there or whatever. And um, we would brainstorm on how to make this happen. And so we would go get coffee and, and sit down. We, we were both in the, in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn Heights. And so we, we would walk down to the water and we would get coffees. I'd always get two cappuccinos. I'd drink one while walking to the water. And I'd drink the other one when I got there. And I'd sit on the rocks by the water in Dumbo. And we'd brainstorm. And then I'd go work at John George or whatever. And Hurricane Sandy came. And so when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, you know, blacked out half of New York, basically, you know, lower Manhattan, uh, as well as uh, much, of, much of Brooklyn and Long Island, all of that. I mean, it was a big thing. Um, but it flooded a restaurant in Dumbo. It was about 10 feet high uh, with water. And um, they had just opened. It was called Governor. And they were friends of Leslie's. And it was actually right down the street from where we'd sit and drink our coffee. You know, we'd walk by it and we'd say, man, good for them. They're doing well. They had another restaurant in Brooklyn Heights. Um, but then it got flooded. And so they closed and they did this like fundraiser and they're trying to reopen. But I think their partnership fizzled. And so they weren't reopening. And so Leslie called me and said, hey, look, they're not reopening, I don't think. Because I, I saw, you know, so-and-so on the street. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're not really sure. We're probably going to have to sell. And she said, you want to go look? And I said, let's do it. So we walk in and it's this light filled space with this green wall. I mean, everything was like a disaster a little bit. Uh, all the walls were ripped out and, and whatnot because it obviously had been flooded. But the green wall was still kind of alive. You know, plants are resilient. And, uh, you know, we're walking around, we're looking and they were asking a crazy amount of key money. So key money, you know, that you're paying for the tables and the chairs and the plateware and everything in the space, what equipment, whatever they've done. And they were asking for like 375,000 or 400,000 or something crazy. So we had no money. We had no business plan. We had no partners. We had no chef, no investors. And I said, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then I'm working like 65 hours a week at Jean George and I was studying you know, I had won Best Sommelier in America um, like two years prior, and I was preparing for Best Sommelier in the World, which you have to do in a foreign language. And I was studying for my Master Sommelier exam. So I was learning French, studying wine, working 65 hours a week for Jean George, and then coming home every night and teaching myself how to write a business plan because I, I 
never was taught that in school or college. And what I had been doing, which I thought was genius, and I still do, uh, collecting business cards from everyone that spent money on wine throughout my entire career. I had everyone's card. Interesting. Yeah. So I wrote this business plan and I showed it to a few CPAs. They said, this looks fantastic. You know, I covered everything. And then uh, I just started calling people and emailing and asking and talking and stuff like that. It was sensitive because as I'm putting this together, one, we already made a commitment to these uh, restaurateurs to, to buy it. And we had no money. And um, two, I was working for Jean George. And now, uh, for all of his, uh, you know, positive qualities, he's also kind of defensive if someone doesn't want to work with him. So, like, if I had been leaving him to go work at another restaurant and he found out, he'd probably let me go on the spot if I'd given notice. And he's done this in the past. I couldn't afford that, so I had to sit down with him at some point also and talk to him about this. But. I just kept sending it out and eventually, uh, you know, uh, I mortgaged my family farm <laughs> well. to get some money uh, there. So I bet the farm on it, you know, uh, and just, you know, I, I remember I was in Tokyo for best money in the world. I'm in, I'm, I'm, you know, in the hotel, I'm taking calls with potential investors, you know, saying, hey, you know, have you looked at this, blah, 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 and just kept selling it and uh, pushing it, you know, and eventually scraped together enough money to get it going. It was very tricky. Uh, the funny thing was the people that I was buying it for hadn't paid rent in like eight months or something like that. The landlord had already taken back the space by the time we came up with the money and, and, and all the contents in it belonged to, to them. So theoretically I didn't have to pay anything. You know, we, my, my partner and I could have just, you know, assumed the space, kept what money we put together, but we, we shook on it. You know, and we didn't want to start a business that way. Uh, so our integrity, we ended up, we didn't have 400000 You know, also some equipment went missing, as it does when, you know, a restaurant's there on its own. And, you know, who knows what chef or sous chef or if, if the people that sold it to us took it or whatever. So important stuff went missing, like Paco Jets and things. But um, anyhow, we came back. We settled on a different price of like three fifty, And we said, we only have half of that. But we'll give it to you and we'll pay you the rest over time. And I remember we went to the closing and with the lawyer and she's like, what do you mean you only have half? I'm like, that's all we have. That's the most we could come up with. And she's like, okay, this will be interesting. So we sit down and they're like, half? No, we can't do that. And I was just super calm and clear. And I said, look, we don't have to give you anything at all. We could just leave and the restaurant's still ours. We have the keys. We have the lease. We're doing this because we said we would and because you guys are in a bind. We know you have investors to answer to you. Uh, and they're trying to recoup some money. We'll give you half today and we'll pay you the rest in the next year. And that's as good as a deal as you're going to get. We're already overpaying. And I knew that I knew we were overpaying, but it was because of the location and the lease yeah. that we really wanted. Uh, and we knew where the neighborhood was headed. And, um, I said, call whoever you got to call, but let me know, you know? And so we're in this room and they call and come back and say, okay, we'll do it. And so that's it. And we paid them every penny, you know, it was really, really difficult. But, but that's what happened. And then so then that's the space that became Atrium Dumbo. Correct. So I want to stick a pin in this for just a second. So as you were looking at places, you said you were looking at spaces in the West Village and, and things like that. Yeah. Did you have in mind a concept, an idea of what you wanted to do and you were just trying to find the right space for that? Or were you trying to find the right space and then you'd find a, a, a concept to fit the space? Yeah, I think in New York and, you know, and I think maybe anywhere. This is just my philosophy, but it's it's been New York driven. Um 
if you don't have a lot of money, you can't build the space the way you want. So you have to find the space that can work, that makes sense. And then you build the concept around that. You know, the other thing is like not many places can be destinations, right? I mean, who's going to be able to make a restaurant that's strong enough destination that's going to bring people? It takes time. It takes money. It takes it takes a lot of things, you know, and you have to have something that they want that nobody else is giving all these, all these different things. You have to be unique. So that's not necessarily feasible. So you have to find a location and then adapt that business to that location. In my opinion, we started looking for the right space and then we can make a concept around it. We have enough experience to make a concept around that. Yeah. This is, um, this is something I'm talking about all the time uh, because this is really the heart of marketing, right? It's, Find an audience that needs to be served, you know, find a problem that needs to be solved and then solve that problem. So you find a space that'll work and you find a neighborhood that needs something and you just deliver that product that the, um, that the neighborhood needs. In this case, Atrium Dumbo, I think, uh, fit a really interesting uh, niche there because uh, certainly when you guys opened, yeah. um, there weren't really like a, like a, there wasn't a good neighborhood restaurant you know, with a great list and, uh, and, and good food. 100%. Um, and it's a strange area because it caters so much in the warm weather months it caters so much to tourists coming there to brooklyn bridge park and the promenade and the carousel there um but you've also got uh st anne's warehouse right around the corner so certainly new yorkers coming to to theater you know every night or you know a couple nights a week so so you saw the space you love the space yeah um you built the concept so what is uh, atrium dumbo again for people who don't live in new york who don't live in brooklyn who haven't been there uh, talk a little bit about Atrium Dumbo. What yeah, so I mean, it's really a neighborhood restaurant, you know. Um, five, you know, well, I guess we're six and some change old uh, years now um, since we opened our doors. And um, when we started, again, we were filling that niche. Even though all of our backgrounds were two and three star Michelin, we couldn't open a two, three star Michelin because we would close it. It would be open for like a <laughs> two months and we would close those doors. Um, Why do you say that? Well, just because it wasn't it wasn't the right marketing, you know, it wasn't the right location. Um, you know, we were on a limited budget. Uh, again, you have to make it a destination. How do you make it a destination? You know, uh, you have to have enough money to put into it to bring people, um, and you're going to lose a ton of money trying to make that happen. Um, you, see, you, I mean, it's funny because going from zero to three star in quality, I mean, that's that's pretty much you know, you're going to go bankrupt. You got to have a big bankroll because you even see two star Michelin restaurants close because what they're doing is they're pushing so hard for that third star that they're not only alienating the guests that they have already, but they're spending so much money in this investment that they, you know, in plateware and service and wine and all of these new things that they go broke trying to make that third star. And I mean, we it's not, you know, you read about this, you read about this all the time, you know, and it's not, especially in New York, you see, you know, three star New York times shooting for four stars, two star Michelin shooting for three stars, you know, and they're, and they're closing because they're pushing so hard for that. And it's so tough to get, you know, but uh, that neighborhood wasn't ready for it. They needed a place that they could come, you know, two, three times a week. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so when did you open? You opened in 2013. Yeah, July. No, well, so we took the space December 2013. By the time it was all done, July 24th, I think, was yeah. the day. Yeah. 2014. Uh, so you open the doors. You're going for uh, you're going for a while. It's 
good right from the start? Talk to about the those first months. No, we almost closed. I mean, every day there were decisions that if we made the wrong ones, we would close our doors. And it was just that it was just that easy. One decision would close us. By the time we took the space, they had just put up scaffolding in front of it. And they actually <laughs> it's a two-story space with a with a mezzanine in these big floor-to-ceiling windows more or less. And they boarded them. They boarded the windows. <laughs> so now I've got all the scaffolding up front. We got no signage. Uh, and we got boards on our windows. And we're just opening. And, you know, the neighborhood, we thought we were going to be heroes because everybody was complaining. Oh, we don't have anywhere to eat. There's nowhere nice. And this is an affluent neighborhood. And so we're like, okay, we, we agree. There's nowhere great to eat. And there's no good wine list. So we're going to make that for you. And you're going to come. And you're going to eat. And you're going to love it. And we're going to take care of you. Eh, nobody came. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, nobody so came. Much. We were on our own, and we had the scaffolding. We had to get the landlord to, 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 to take off the boards off the windows. That was a whole episode. The only reason we made it was because people from Manhattan were coming to visit. We had built up enough credibility in our industry between the three partners that people were traveling from Manhattan to come visit. And this were specifically contacts of yours, colleagues of yours, friends. Yeah, you know, and there was, you know... Everybody talks about it. Every Oh, I'm going to open a restaurant one day or I'm going to open a bar. But nobody really does it. It's pretty rare, right? If, if for a multitude of reasons. So when we did it, uh, people were like, hey, that's cool. They actually did it. We're going to go check it out. So that kind of kept us open the first year. And I remember there were multiple times where it was like one event saved us from closing. One was we catered a wedding. There was an event space across the street. But they since moved to Detroit, my, my hometown. That's funny. Yeah, it is funny. But um, they closed down there. But but basically, we catered a wedding across the street there. And it was a huge wedding. And that was like $20,000, right? And, um, you know, we still see those, uh, you know, the bride and groom uh, from time to time, uh, which is great. And that kept us open. That We were going to close without that. Another one was uh, Dumbo is home to, um, so that's the neighborhood Dumbo, um, is home to uh, a lot of, filming so a lot of great films we see uh is happening down there a lot of shooting in these industrial spaces and elementary with lucy Liu and johnny lee miller they shot there and they rented it out for like two days and that was like 20 grand and yeah. that kept us from closing so so then what else did you guys do in that first year aside from you know luring all of the your manhattan friends colleagues yeah. uh prior guests what else specifically did you guys do in that first year can you remember back like like aside from, you know, g getting a film shoot and, you know, getting lucky to cater a wedding, you know, what efforts did you guys do? What, um, you know, what did you do in that first year? Man, we, I mean, everything, obviously. We, we, I remember hiring. We wanted a really well-trained staff, so we tried to hire staff and then train them. And we did all these talks and we had people come in. I had the experience of working with, uh, when I worked with Michael Mina in Detroit, they had all the purveyors come in, like everything from the meat guy to the water guy to, you know, oh, the plateware person, whatever, tea, uh, and do trainings. So we, you know, I, I modeled our training after that, you know. Uh, so we did two weeks of training. I did wine training, you know, all this stuff. And then, you know, hired all these people, many of them without experience. Uh, and it worked really well for us in that regards. I don't know if I really thought about the ramifications of payroll at that point for those two weeks of not being open. And then you think about staff turnover right after, 
And you're like, well, we have like a few of those people that are still here. So that was challenging. Uh, setting up everything, you know, like who's going to do your linens? Who's going to be your purveyors? Like where, you know, where are you going to store wine? I have no storage. I've got the smallest place, both for food and wine and dry goods. There's like no storage. I think everybody has to deal with this. So, you know. So then the place opens in 2014 yep. and it's the ship eventually solidifies, uh, you know, the, the, the waters settle and, and things get back on track and it becomes, you know, relatively profitable and, yeah. you know, certainly much more steady, you know, r- more reliable. I mean, it's now a fixture in the neighborhood yeah. and, uh, and it's great. I mean, it's packed every time, every time I go there, it's one of those places where the doors open and you've got a, you know, 15 people outside and they just, they flood in. It's a, it's a very cool thing to see. Um, but then you guys decided to open a second restaurant, a different concept, uh, back down in Brooklyn Heights, kind of right on the tails of this. Yeah. Right. So three years in, I mean, God, uh, it's, it's, we're foolish and, uh, you know, full of hubris thinking the first one went well, we managed to pull this through. Right. And it's, we got a good team. Uh, things are going well. Why not do a second? Right. Uh, because one is not making as much money as we need as three partners, investors, things like that. So let's open a second, right? And so Brooklyn still, same area, more or less. Now, this is from Dumbo to Brooklyn Heights. We're walking around one day, and I see this restaurant, and it's always empty. And I'm like, they're going to close soon, for sure. You can smell it. And I think I think Danny Meyer even maybe said this, or somewhere I, I remember, like, and I think it had to do with fruit bowls. I don't know. I have this weird thing about fruit bowls on the bar being stocked. <laughs> it's always one of the signatures of the uh, the Alexander LaPrette bar. <laughs> you know? And um, because if not, you know, people can smell that you're kind of on your last legs. So I would walk by, it'd always be empty. And I'm like, they're going to close soon. So I started asking around a little bit. And our real estate agent uh, came in one day for lunch, Tatrium. And I said, hey, do you know anything about this restaurant? And it's like, it's funny you should ask because they're looking to sell. Wow, interesting. Yeah. He so just I, caught the right person. Yeah. So I knew. Uh, and they're not telling anyone. So then we, 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 we came down and we talked about it they wanted too much in key money and we said no nah, we'll just wait for you to close and then we'll buy it anyway and uh we'll, we'll see you in six months and is that what happened yeah so then we walked and then we came back six months later and we said here's our original amount what do you think and they've been losing like 10 15 thousand a month and I said sure we'll take it right you know and so we we did that and we came up with this concept because we thought it was cool. Brooklyn, you know, uh, we called it Beasts and Bottles. And it was a rotisserie concept. And we had multiple issues from the beginning. We brought in a contractor, the same person that had helped build Atrium, had left the company he was working with, the design firm, started his own kind of construction thing. So we brought him in as a partner. We wanted him, and he had a new partner. So it was two people. We said, great, you guys build the space. Here's kind of our budget. This is what you'll get. You'll come in as partners. Great. Construction guys are super unreliable, right? And, um, you know, the work was so-so and they wouldn't show up on time. And then I'd have to come let people in and all this shit, but whatever, you know, we're, you know, restaurants close before they open because of delays, right? Because you can't, you don't have enough money. You got to start making money. So we're like, okay, whatever it takes, let's get this thing built so that we can get open. Right. So they, th- you know, we do these concrete bar tops that I design, like, so it's all super efficient and stuff. And they, they, they screw that up and like all these things. It takes extra time. We're delayed, whatever. Finally, then they come back. They knew the budget the whole time. They weren't supposed to take a percentage of profit, all these things. Um, 
And it's like two and a half times what we talked about, you know? Yeah. So from the get go, we're in a lawsuit with our contractors. Right. So basically I, I, I sat down, well, uh, Leslie and, and I and, and the contra- contractors, we sat down and we said, look, this is not what we agreed on. Business can't support it. We go through the numbers and I'm like, we're still way over, but we'll pay you. They were asking like 425. We had originally talked about 300. And uh, we said, okay, I'll tell you what, we can do 350. Um, and they're like, no. And we went back and forth and they said, fine, we, we can do 400. We'll figure it out. You know, it's going to, it's going to really hurt things, but we'll do 400,000 and uh, increase your percentage and stuff. And we sit down and we go through it and they say, fine. And then they come back and they say, no, let's have another meeting about it. And so basically at this point I said, no, we're not having another meeting. We've had like six and we shook on it. And that's it. You've already overcharged us. You've inflated these numbers. Um, most of these people did these jobs for free. You know it and I know it. And the reason they did is because these guys had bigger jobs, right? They had other, other jobs that they could do. Uh, and it's like, hey, you come do this little thing for me and I'll give you a big job where you can make some real money, right? So come build this little whatever. Yeah, for sure. Right? And yeah. so they say, okay, fine. You know, I've known you a long time. You know, we, we, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. So a lot of these people are working for free in my space, right? And the contractors are charging me for it. They're doing subpar work, but it's getting done. And I knew this and it was fine until they hit me with this gigantic bill, which is crazy town. Right. So I talked to him on the phone. I said, look, we got two ways to do this. We shook on it. I'm a man of my word. But if you don't do what you said you were going to do, even after you've already changed it and we've agreed, then we're going to wait for you to put a lawsuit and it's going to take two to three years for you to see any money. And I'm going to do my best not to pay you a damn thing because we talked about it. We agreed. I think this is extortion. I said, if you can't see that, I just want to let you know what you're getting into. This is my last call. And that's how it's going to go. So I suggest you take it. They didn't take it. Six months later, they start the lawsuit. We just settled three years into it. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and we paid them, you know, a lot less. We paid them 200000 Right. You know, because that's what the value of the work was. But, I mean, it cost us some legal fees, but it saved us a lot of money. And they're also not our partners. Right. So it's a, it's a win for us. If the business was more healthy, it'd be a big win. You know, but it's just a shame because people... I don't know. You know, my father growing up on a farm, he would walk into a store and without money, you know, he'd be like, I'm good for it. And then he'd leave. And yeah. everybody's cool with that because they know he pays his bills. Right. And and that's how we operate as well. You know, be your word. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So anyhow, so that with the legal fees hurt us from the very beginning. And the design also, it's pretty, but it's not as warm and welcoming. It's a little cold. So that was a problem. The second problem that we've had and it's a bit too much wood, you know. So I don't know. Beasts and Bottles might be, we're thinking it's too edgy of a name for this neighborhood. It's a historic neighborhood. Um, affluent, but been there a long time. The funny thing is everybody wants to get the minimum wage higher, right? Everybody wants to make more money off their real estate. But nobody wants to pay more for a plate of food, no matter what. It's like, are you crazy? You're charging $22 for chicken? You know, it's like... Yeah, it's organic, it's farmed, it's all these things. It's like, yes, that's how much it costs. Like, I think it's really interesting because you run to neighborhood restaurants and I right. think there's this disconnect. People are willing to go to Jean-Georges or Danielle because they know that that's 
a beacon of fine dining and they understand they have to pay for that. Sure. But when you're doing food that's of the same quality right. in a neighborhood restaurant, um, there's a disconnect where people well, don't see That's the that. thing. Like, you know, it's the exact same purveyors, the exact same, right? Danielle, Jean-Georges, they're buying their food, their raw product from the same people I'm buying my raw product from, right? Um, if I made little dainty plates of food and tried to charge those prices in that environment, people would revolt. 100%. I, I love Beast and Bottles. I think, it's a, I think it's a really strong concept. I like it in the neighborhood, and I know it's, you know, I know it's had its highs and lows, and it's kind of struggled and so that's um i'm curious about it because um right. so before we went uh before we started recording i was explaining to to alex here that um that the audience here for the podcast uh, are mainly restaurant owners and chefs and and all of that and it's about the good the bad and the ugly and that i really wanted to get into it because i think uh, i think hearing other people's stories can be very uh, illuminating uh, especially when people are struggling with their own restaurant whether it's here in new york or, or anywhere else in in the country or the world uh, certainly we've got an uh, audience all over the world and and these are kind of universal things we deal with um so i'm glad uh i'm glad you're willing to kind of get into it yeah. and share the i think it's important you know i went to a lecture and the new york times put on their first food festival yeah just this past this, week this past week you know and so i went and i heard a lecture uh architecture uh, and of eating or something like that and it was uh, Danny Meyer and an architect that relocated Union Square, his first restaurant, to its new location. But these issues, it's not just us, and it's probably just not our listeners here, but you know, you got one of the most celebrated restaurateurs in New York City and in the country, uh, and, and clearly one of the most successful, uh, Danny Meyer, and he's telling us about some of the issues he had at Union Square Hospitality, you know, or Union Square uh, Restaurant, his first his first restaurant, and about the space and how the ceiling was too low and how the bar area was always packed, but it made no sense because there's no reason why it should be packed. And about, you know, the air, cold air blowing down on gas and how, you know, the the kitchen was only seven foot tall and in the basement, you know, and how it would flood and all these things. We deal with these every day, you know, so... I think it, it was refreshing sometimes to remember it's not just us that, you know, are dealing with these hardships or making mistakes, which are, which are great learning opportunities. But, uh, and he was talking about when he moved, he wanted to address all the shortcomings from the original in the new place and make things better, you know, uh, which is not, you know, any different than what we wanted to do from atrium to be some bottles. So then with be some bottles, that's been going on for a couple of years now. And, um, wow. So how has, uh, what have you guys done or what are you guys doing? Or the concept has stayed the same. It's still a yeah. rotisserie first. Um, yeah. the wine list is got to focus on Rhone and Beaujolais, right? Yeah. And champagne. Yeah. Yeah. And champagne. Um, all of that has stayed the same more or less, but you know, it's funny. Um, and I think I've, I've heard this somewhere else. It's like you start with an idea and then your guests tell you what you're really going to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, because it has to work and the audience, I've got older Jewish clientele, uh, in the neighborhood, right? Right. I've got, I got families that have just moved that have bought probably their first house in the neighborhood. Um, I've got some new developments coming. So I've got some young people, I've got some influx. Uh, and then I got, I got some young people coming from, uh, other neighborhoods just a little bit. And then I've got tourists that are going down to the park every once in a while. I think... 
when you walk by with our design and things like that, you know, people think maybe it's a beer bar or something like that. It sounds very rustic. Beasts right. and bottles. It's supposed to be edgy, but I don't know if that's catching on, you know. Uh, rotisserie, I can't even tell you how difficult it is. Like Boston chicken, fine, right? <laughs> We're talking fast, casual, go in. The problem is a grocery store has a rotisserie chicken, right? So this is probably a pump full of antibiotics. It's, you know, like a six-pound chicken. It's tiny. It's mostly bones. Uh, you know, it's super salty because who knows how long it's set there. Right. All this. But they're selling it for like eight bucks, right? And it's a whole chicken even though it's like a baby whole chicken or whatever. Right. Um, so you have to compete against that. And also, how do you cook a roast rotisserie chicken... And serve it hot, but keep it moist. How can you rotis on demand? Is that yeah. even a word? How do you rotis on demand? Um, challenges, right? You right. can't. It's impossible. You can't do it. There's just no way. So you have to pre-rotis and then like finish. And then crispy skin makes a bird and it has to be moist. So how do you keep a chicken moist when you have to cook it almost two times? And people just don't understand. You know, and it's super complex and like, why should they pay more? I get it. I don't think they get it. Yeah, I know. I get it that I'm sourcing these birds from like organic free range, all this stuff. Um, but I don't think anybody else does. And then I also don't think that, you know, I mean, I don't know if anyone can really tell the difference. You know, I don't know. Right. So with Atrium, you kind of delivered the restaurant that you felt like the, the neighborhood needed. needed. And yep. even if they didn't realize it at first, they've come along and yep. I think that's largely succeeded. Yeah. Um, so then what, so then is this a little bit of the opposite with Beast and Bottles? You delivered something you thought would really succeed there. Yeah. And it's largely that the audience, that the neighborhood just doesn't want it or doesn't need it. Well, you know, and it's also really tricky because with a neighborhood restaurant and, uh, you know, uh, Paul Greco, great restaurateur, cut his teeth through Gramercy Tavern. He comes from a long lineage of restaurant families. He opened a bunch of uh, wine bars, terroir. Uh, he had one in, um, uh, in Tribeca that's been very successful. And then he opened many across the city and they pretty much all closed. And, and I talked to him one day and I said, Paul, what, what, what happened? And he said, look, you can't, you can't build a business around Friday, Saturday. And that's a fact. Right. It's so difficult because Sunday night, a little bit, Monday through Thursday, you're dead. And then Friday, Saturday, you're super busy. A, how do you staff for that? Who's going to, I mean, like, especially in the kitchen, really, front of house, a bit more mercenary, right? You can get people that'll pick up a shift here and there or whatever. Yeah, for sure. But people in the kitchen, they expect a full-time job, right? So how do you pay them? you know, to keep your staffing labor in check that makes sense for the revenue you're generating, but you need more people on those two days. So you can't be like, okay, well, I'm just going to, I just need you Friday, Saturday night. Nobody's going to work that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, how do you stay open? Um, you know, and how do you build that business throughout the week? You know, that these are challenges that are universal. I guarantee it. Yeah, I mean, we were. I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a colleague, uh, who said, you know, he thinks that the model of restaurants, at least in America, is uh, is going to change drastically over the next five years. And he said, you know, I, I don't think you can open. He's like, I think it's going to be really hard to open new restaurants over the next five years. That they almost have to be in a hotel. They have to be part of something else as an amenity, as as part of a destination, yeah. a larger, a greater destination. That the old, uh, that the old 
Gramercy Tavern, you know, Craft yeah. Union Square Cafe, this these giant restaurants where they spent you know, millions of dollars to you know to gut renovate them, um, just isn't possible anymore. Well, you know what's interesting, and I I completely agree with that, but it depends on the market, right? So New York, I agree 100%. Uh, San Francisco, we're already seeing the ramifications of what's happening there. That whole industry is collapsing, it's failing in a major way, uh, and I can't, I, I don't know uh, a more challenging city than San Francisco to have a restaurant right now. You know, a lot of that has to do with as the city becomes more successful, you know, rents increase. Uh, you have the diversification of wealth. You know, it's pushing out people that can't afford those apartments. These are the people that are working in these outlets, right? These are the people that are working in these restaurants. They can't afford to live there. So if they can't afford to live there, you can't get labor, right? We have all-time low unemployment in the country as a whole, yeah. right? But that, why is that? Is that because maybe we're stagnant in growth or what? Is that because we have less immigration coming in i don't know you know uh, add to that competing industries so uh in the west coast you have uh you know i don't know marijuana for sure is, is starting to be a big thing um with 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 labor you're looking at uh tech you know silicon valley and all of that a lot of startups and things like that like the paychecks that my friends were making when they moved out there and they're smart but they didn't have a lot of experience. The money that they're making from startups is ridiculous. And you know what? I, I had a chance to talk with a friend of mine, um, and he is a major eventer and, and a billionaire, and he travels the world, and he consults on world governments and stuff. So I talked to him a bit about the economic kind of outlook, and I was saying about restaurants. Now it's such a difficult market uh, because... I say it's a race to the bottom. By that, I mean it's a low barrier of entry. Anyone with money can open one, right? Just because you think you can throw a good dinner party, you can open a restaurant. You don't know what you're getting into. And so you start cutting prices or you're not pricing correctly in the first place. So it's not sustainable, but you're the best value in town. But a year later, you're closed. And then the next one pops up. So these are who I have to compete with all the time, right? The restaurant next door, undercutting their prices, but they're out of business in a year. And then the next one opens. And so New York's 50,000 restaurants, right? And so you can choose. I mean, you could go around and eat at these restaurants that are closing, you know, every week. And you would never eat at the same one and you'd be good, right? Uh, it would put, it, it would, you know, and it puts a strain on businesses that are looking for longevity that are raising their prices and things like that. And you know what my friend told me? He said, it's just like the startup world. And I never thought about it like that. And it was really like a kind of a light bulb because... You know, the same thing. You've got these established companies and then you've got these new tech companies. They hire all the talent. They've got all the money. And then like a year later, they're closed. You know, they went bust and then everybody's on to the next thing. Right. So then how do you, um, so then what are the next six months of Beast and Bottles look like for you guys? Have you started thinking yeah. about how this thing is going to transition or what kind of shifts? Oh, totally. So, you know, also we recently removed our chef, chef partner. You know, uh, he was in, he was you know in charge of Atrium and Beeson Bottles. One of the other things that we started with, uh, we didn't execute the concept the way that we should have, uh, and we know that uh, that was our mistake. Uh, it could have been much stronger, and a lot of it dealt with a skill set that we don't have. I can't. I mean, I went to culinary school. I, I cook really well at home, but I'm not a professional chef. Although I can help make things more efficient and things like that. You know, I also have other things that I'm in charge of. So how much time can I dedicate to that? When we removed him because things weren't happening the way they should have, uh, the kitchen also left. 
right? So trying to find stability in the back of house when you're a front of house operator, trying to find someone that has integrity or, you know, and, and, and will show up. I can't tell you how many, and, and it's across the board. It's not just back house, actually. You do interviews, right? You, 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 you put out an ad and people respond. You say, okay, great, let's do an interview. I schedule like five in a day, every half hour. One or two will show up, if any. Uh, back of house, they'll just not come. And you'll never know what happened to them until they, they say, I'm calling Department of Labor because I haven't gotten my check yet. <laughs> and you're like, I thought you were dead, dude. Like, where have you been? You're like, no call, no show, don't answer. And yeah. then you're like, why haven't you made me my check? Like, uh, yeah, I'm on it. Yeah. Trust me. Because I had to close that night because you didn't come to work. Yeah, right. Amazing. So you made a change and now you're redoing kind of the the menu, the... Yeah, so we're just tight, we're it. tightening it up and we're also... Uh, we're rebuilding that team, which takes time. You know, it, it really does, and a lot of effort. Um, but again, it's really that grit that it keeps it going. You know, and um, trying to adjust a bit more to be more friendly to the neighborhood. It's an interesting area. Some things that we were doing are working really well. Some things are not working at all. Um, and trying to figure out how to make the most of that. Right. Is, is a key We're you know, we're very lucky that, that people come and, and still have a great time and that we, we do a lot with events and, you know, things like that, but, uh, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, no, but that's interesting. I mean, you know, that you guys have the fortitude and the, the drive to keep tweaking it and, and keep the transition going and hone the vision. Yeah. So, and then there's, uh, there's plans afoot to expand beyond New York as well yeah. for the Atrium brand, right? Uh, yeah. Well, we're, we're working on a new concept in Miami right now. And again, it was really about the opportunity, the location. We're looking at emerging markets, lower um, uh, hourly wages, uh, lower cost of rent, uh, populations that kind of have the understanding of a, of a dining experience that would appreciate wine specifically. Um, and so, you know, it drew us to the Miami market. We just spent a lot of time looking through all the different neighborhoods and we found, uh, we found an area that we think is, uh, you know, very viable for what we would like to do. And, you know, and then how do you put together funding? It's a huge project. It's about 8,000 square feet. Yeah, that's big. You know, and so it's tough, you know, especially in, I don't know for those owners or, or, or soon to be owners of uh, restaurants that are listening, but every time you apply for credit, or, or a loan or something like that, they're going to, they're going to refer to your personal credit. Our industry is like, I don't know, you know, it's like, it's like we're pirates or, or something, you know, it's like not respectable. It's like, well, and it, and it has a lot to do with that failure rate. I'm sure yeah, about I, people opening businesses that they don't understand, you know? And so banks don't really care about your business credit. Yeah. They're looking at your personal credit. You know, you almost always have to sign a guarantee personally Right. You know, and which also can ruin your life. Yeah. If you're wrong and you sign a personal guarantee and your business fails, you are screwed. So you're going through this all again when you're looking at Miami. Yeah, I mean, it's luckily like we're in scratch. a much we're in a much better position, you know, with Miami for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, our funding and stuff, you know, you just have to be really intelligent. Uh, my, uh, you know, I strongly recommend not signing any personal guarantees unless you absolutely have no other out. Um, and so we've been able to avoid it, but, 
Um, but, but, but that's the thing. It's this whole rodeo dance of, uh, how are we going to get the money to do it? You know? And the other thing is like, who's going to invest, right? Is there a recession coming? Like, is it as lucrative as tech? Is it as lucrative as uh, many other industries? Definitely not. No. <laughs> no. So who are you going to get to invest, right? In your dream to do whatever you're going to do, it's like really, really difficult. So you got to find people that have a, have a, you know, a selfish reason to be a part of this. Right. Or do you have to leverage your friendships yeah. <laughs> and your network. <laughs> Welcome to the restaurant industry. <laughs> yeah. So uh, do you have a lot of the same investors who have kind of trekked through Atrium and no. Bottles and the new project? No, it's really weird. Atrium... I had like two major investors, two big investors. One was starting his own hedge fund. And so I actually bought him out. So that was great for us. Right. Right. Because we, we, I think we got a lot of value there. The other went through a divorce and, uh, you know, sold off his wine collection and his like third house or whatever. And he's starting over and whatever. And so, you know, these guys are already making money that's much more reliable at probably a higher rate than what they're making from Atrium. And then, um, you know, the second restaurant we did basically all on our own. One of the reasons I really want that to work because we, we you know, it's, you know, if it works, you know, what profit there is, it's mostly ours, which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, so, that's worth mentioning. I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, you know, and then, so the third one we start over, different market, you know, it's tough because then like your, your network's New York based and you're like, well, you know, this restaurant's in, you know, Miami or... Abu Dhabi or whatever, wherever it is, you right. know, if they're not there already, then it's tough. Like you should invest in this like drawing I have and this thing on paper that you can't see. That's tricky. But at this point, your resume uh, has got to, has got to help a little yeah. bit. I mean, certainly you've worked for, you know, to go back to the beginning of this interview, you've worked for all these great, uh, you know, restaurateurs and, um, all these great restaurant groups. And, uh, you're certainly, um, about as accomplished as anyone that I know in the industry. We didn't even really get into this, and I want to uh, I want to be respectful of your time. We're going to close this up in just a second. But uh, Alex is a master sommelier, and uh, for those of you uh, out there who don't know, uh, there are four main distinctions of sommelier. There are uh, four levels, three that we talk about all the time. Um, you know, the beginning certification, the advanced, and then master sommelier. There are less than three hundred in the world. That's correct. As yeah. we're uh, as we're recording this, uh, so it's. Uh, it's no small deal. It's very, very uh, difficult to pass that exam. Um, so certainly all of that must help as you're courting new investors and bringing people on board. You know, yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got an extensive resume and, you know, I've got a lot of results, you know, that I, uh, that I can point to to say that I've got experience and I deliver, you know, I've got a really good reputation. Um, you know, everybody's happy with us. Um, you know, I always like to say not everybody probably likes me, but uh, almost everyone respects me professionally. You know what I mean? And I think that's, that's important. Not everyone's going to like you and I'm fine with that. I do the best I can, but it's, it's interesting, you know, when you're looking for funding and things like that, you know, uh, there's, especially with the atrium, when I was originally doing it, I had all these cards from these like millionaires and billionaires, right? But they already have super diverse portfolios. They talk to their investment, you know, their portfolio manager. They're like, no, nah, it's too high risk. We're not going to do it. So it's weird. It's like either you have people with a lot of money that, that, that are like already good. And then you have people with no money that want to but can't. Right. So you got to find that sweet spot. You know, what I found actually lately um, is building the business from friends or associates that are kind of in that middle market. Because for someone without a huge amount of money that they can invest or take risks on if 
they are investing in a business like a restaurant that, you know, that, that with someone that, that that's going to come through, it does make a very healthy return, you know, compared to the market. It'll be more than the market for sure. Um, you know, if you're really, really lucky, you can get maybe a 10% return, but not even now, you know, I think that would be, that would be strong, um, depending on how much money you have out there and how much risk you're taking. So I, I don't know, you know, and that's what I found that, that, that's been, been helpful, but you know, in this game, it's really counting the pennies. This, this, you know, industry, this, this business is really built on pennies. And I'm talking about crazy stuff where I'm like, how many cotton napkins are you going to use this shift? Each one is 15 cents. You better use that again. You know what I mean? Like we, we got to take the chef's towels, put them in the office because those are 20 cents a piece. Yeah. Like, you know what? You're get, everybody gets three for the shift. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> one you put in your sanitizer bucket and the other two you can use to wipe stuff. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, the success of a restaurant is on, you know, it's two sides. It's the profit and the loss and, you know, managing, you know, the, yeah. you know, the loss that you go through every day. You got to be so efficient. I mean, I've got a bajillion <laughs> tips that I could tell someone on how to be very efficient and cut, you know, five, six percent off the bottom line. You don't learn this until you get into it, right? This is no. that, you know, wisdom comes from but, experience. Yeah. And you got to be a hustler. You have to look at opportunities. You have to always be thinking outside the box and looking for ways to be more efficient. You know, and, you know, one, one of the great things, you got to do more with less. You yeah. really do. Well, restaurant owners, I think, uh, learn that all too quickly. that You have to do more with uh, less and less and less. Um, I can't believe we've been sitting here talking all this time. We've hardly talked wine, which is crazy because yeah. <laughs> uh, wine is the, is the thrust of your career and, the, uh, and certainly the drive and the passion. Um, you, you tell this really great story about uh, when you passed your, uh, your master sommelier exam. And uh, I want to... I wanna, See if you can share that uh, for me yeah. and for the listeners and all that, because uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the Master Sommelier exam is in three parts and you've got three years to pass it. So if you pass one section and fail the other two, you can go back the next year and the next year to um, get better and, and to try and pass those other parts. That's what happened with you. Yeah. Um, so walk me through the, uh, this was a couple of years ago when you were opening your second place, right? Or was uh, Let's see. I don't know if, no, I think I passed before opening the second place. It was when you were yeah I was at atrium. atrium yeah I was at atrium <laughs> so um you know it's tricky and, and it's not rare that we you know you're sitting with me as a master sommelier's career all these three star restaurants you know some of the best restaurants in the world where I've worked primarily in a wine capacity right I deal with that so little these yeah. days because that is is kind of like a luxury of time that I don't have. You know, because I've got all these other things. Running a business is not having a, a great wine program or a great list. Um, it's about everything else. So I get a lot of people that reach out to me. They're like, dude, can you taste? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, I don't taste anymore. Like, I'll go to a tasting unless I need something. If it makes financial sense for the business, I don't have time for that. Right. I just don't. So, um, you know, with the Master Sommelier exam, uh, I remember the first time that I got, so I passed my advanced exam on the first try on the West Coast of French Laundry. I came to the East Coast. I had won tons of competitions, including uh, Best Sommelier in America. And my goal was to pass the Master Sommelier exam on the first try. You know, um, a lot of my peers were looking at me and they said, like, this guy's got a chance. Because, you know, I was very active uh, and I was studying. I was working really hard. And uh, so I waited one extra year. They invited me and I said, you know, I want to take one more year. I want to make sure I'm really ready. And so I did competitions to kind of help prepare me. And then uh, the first year, I um, I go down there. 
uh, to Dallas, and uh, it's at the Four Seasons. So even with a discounted room rate, we're talking like two hundred something a night. Um, it's uh, you know three four day test, so you're there five days, and you're not working. So five days at two fifty plus a week of you know maybe twelve hundred dollars that you've missed. You know, you're you're talking almost three grand just to go do that before your suit, your tie, your food, all that stuff, right? So I can't afford that. So I already pay for the exam also, which, you know, that's another fifteen hundred bucks or whatever. Uh you've got your plane ticket, you know, that's probably another five hundred or whatever. And so I can't stay at the four seasons, long story short. So I stay like a quarter mile away at La Quinta Inn. <laughs> and I hope someone from La Quinta is listening. <laughs> So I stay in this this place and it's very inexpensive and I check in and I'm stressed out. First room, smoky. You know, you can tell someone was smoking in that room and I can't be in a room that smells like smoke when I'm going to have to go in and decipher out of six wines, you know, what they are, where they come from in the world, all of that without knowing, right? Just from sense and taste. So I asked for a different room. They put me in a different room. I'm next to this small, like... Uh, exercise room where these kids are playing and they're like going crazy. I don't know where their parents are. I wish we knew, but it's like someone, <laughs> you know, like it's like an earthquake next door. Right. And so eventually these kids go to bed or whatever. Uh, and then I go to bed, you know, and I try to get a good night's nice rest cause I got to be up early 9am. I'm tasting something like at nine fifteen, and, and I'm sleeping really poor. And, um, and I can't figure out why. And I just think I'm just stressed out. I'm like, man, I'm having these bad dreams and uh, I feel like something's like, I feel itchy and all this stuff. And so I'm like, okay, you just calm down, take some deep breaths, go back to sleep. And I'm like, no, I definitely feel like something's crawling on me. So then I'm <laughs> like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm in my head. Stop psyching yourself. I'm like, no, I'm sure something's crawling on me. So I turn on the light and I throw back the covers and I'm covered in these small ants. This is at like two, three in the morning. <laughs> So I'm at La Quinta Inn, 3 a.m., covered in ants, in this crappy hotel room. And I'm like, is there anybody at the front desk? If there are, if there is someone there, do you think they really care? What's going to happen? I'm going to get up. I'm going to, like, kill my sleep cycle. I'm going to go down there, try to explain it to them, pack up my stuff in my room, move to another room. And then what? How much sleep am I going to get? And I need it. So I had a little futon, like a little, like, love seat. And I had spare blankets in the closet uh, of the room. So I go to the bathroom. I rinse myself off. I grab the spare blanket. I sleep on the love seat. I'm up at, you know, eight to go be there at nine, whatever. So I walk into this room without any sleep and a blind taste deductively. And uh, I don't feel great. No kidding. Shocker, right? I don't feel great. So I come back really depressed, really down. Um, usually I know if I did great and I knew I didn't do great. So, you know, I called my partners. I'm like, I don't think I did it. And then I just sat in my room in the dark and I like moped. And I'm like, <laughs> I suck. <laughs> and I definitely didn't just pass this. That, that whole extra year and all that time studying wasted. Um, but there were two more parts, right? So I had service and I had theory. And I said, look, LaPratt, pull it together. You know, make the most of it. You know, uh, be, a, be a man. So uh, I was like, okay. Out of my pity party, uh, refocused, got a, got a different room, went back in there. I crushed service. I crushed theory. Uh, I get my results, and they're like, look, can I use an expletive? 
uh, about your service. I'm like, yeah, they're like, it was fucking perfect. And I'm like, awesome. Awesome. I mean, but that's my, I mean, working in the finest dining rooms in the country for, yeah. for most of my career. So well, service is the hardest they always say of the three. And so that's, well, it's interesting because everybody has some part that they're like, usually it's two out of three that you're good at right at that level. First wine guy I ever worked under uh, here in New York City was Greg Harrington, and uh, who's a master sommelier now, a winemaker out in uh, out in Washington. And Fantastic he wine. always had the craziest stories to to tell, and specifically about service. But yeah, and 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 Greg uh, has has played a major role in the court of master sommelier, so that's a great person to uh, to be working with. Um, so anyhow, I did that, and uh, theory I crushed as well, but tasting there like you didn't make it. I said, well, kind of saw that coming. So left one year later, tasting a bunch, tasting all the time, you know, opening atrium. I come down, I do a staff training with my bags right before we open and I take my bags to JFK. So I'm at JFK. I've got like three hours early. I've packed like my humidifiers in Dallas because it's dry and I'm like, maybe that was it. I need more humidity, all this stuff. I got my suit, my, my, my pant, all this stuff. Go to the airport. I'm there at like maybe three. My f- flight's at seven. I got plenty of time. I'm right. relaxing. Uh, flight delayed, flight delayed, flight delayed. Apparently there's storms in Boston, right? And my plane's coming from Boston to JFK and then JFK to Dallas or something ridiculous. Right. So delayed, delayed, delayed. It's like nine o'clock and we're still delayed. Right. And the plane comes. So we finally get the plane and I'm like, yes, we have a plane. They're like, yeah, but you don't have a crew. So we got to try to put together a crew. <laughs> So I call my partner. I'm like, look, I don't think this thing's going to happen. I need to find a flight. I need to be in Dallas in the AM, you know, to taste at like 10. Uh, she's with uh, uh, one of our managers and they start looking. And uh, I'm talking to the court uh, of Master Sommeliers and the board. And they're like, look, we know you're trying to get down here. If you can't make it, we won't count it against your clock because your clock is ticking. If I didn't go, normally they would take a year off. Right. right? And I get one less chance. And I said, fuck that. I'll be there. <laughs> you know, like some kind of psycho. I have no idea how I'm going to get there. I'll be there. You know, it's like whiplash or something. It really is like whiplash. If you've seen that movie, the, the drumming movie is like, I'm going to be there. You know, right. he's racing. So I find, uh, well, my partner finds a flight at 630 leaving from Newark. Now I'm at JFK. It's like <laughs> 9, 930. I go to the agent. I say, look, I need my bag back. I can't keep waiting here. And they're like, uh-uh, your bag's going to Dallas with or without you. It's on the plane. I'm like, how can it be on the plane if you don't even have a crew and the plane isn't leaving? I need my bag. They're like, no. So what I didn't know, though, is 2011, we had a new law. You should be able to get your, your bag back, apparently. I don't know. But anyhow, that guy wasn't having it, and I was tired, and I knew I needed to get some sleep. So my humidifier, my suit, my pin, my shirt, my tie, all of that on the plane. Uh. So I, I take the hour... 15 drive back from JFK to my little shitty basement apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, and then I'm there and I pack my other suit and my other shoes, my other tie. I've got no pin and no humidifier, whatever. And then I get up. So I'm, I'm back maybe 11 by the time I'm done packing. It's probably close to midnight. I'm up at 4 AM to make it to Newark by five ish for this 6:15 or 6:30 flight or whatever from Newark straight to Dallas. Right. I hit I hit the ground running in Dallas. I changed in the back of a taxi cab on my way to the Four Seasons. Um I realized I don't have any socks. I forgot my socks. 
So I've got the dress shoes. I got no <laughs> socks. I run in and I see a friend of mine who's now just recently passed his master's only exam, Scott Tyree. And I see him at the desk. I say, Scott. He's like, you made it. I'm like, yes, because everybody kind of has been following the saga. Right. Uh, I'm like, is there a store I can buy some socks? I got no socks. You know, that's <laughs> very direct. And he looked at me like I'm a crazy person. He's like, no, but I'm going to give you my lucky socks. So he runs upstairs, comes down. I got his lucky socks. I finished lacing my shoes. And they come in and say, Mr. LaPrat, are you ready? <laughs> no. And I'm like, well, hell, I didn't fly all this way for nothing. Let's right. do it. So I go in and I taste and I fail that one too. <laughs> But not for lack of trying. <laughs> no, no. But 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 I made it. So that was like a victory, I guess. And then uh, the third year, they moved it from Dallas to Aspen. So it's high altitude. And then you're thinking, how do I taste at high altitude? Now, right. I've climbed uh, Mount Rainier and stuff and been at high altitude, but not until after. So I had no experience at that point with high altitude and being dehydrated and out of breath and, you know, thinner air, all this stuff and, you know, whatever. So... A week before this exam is coming, I'm tasting. I'm getting up at like 7 a.m. to go to the city to taste and all that. Um, a week before, it's my mother's 60th birthday. So I fly back to Detroit because I want to surprise her for her birthday, being a good son. I catch a cold on the plane. <laughs> so I'm all stuffed up. And I can't breathe out of my nose. And I'm stressing out. I'm just sitting there on the couch. I remember plain as day. I'm in the living room, stressing out at my parents' house. And I'm like, you know what? The hell with it. I said... High altitude, probably going to dehydrate me. It'll probably clear out my nose and whatever. And in addition, I'm not changing anything. And I made the choice right there that it was a mental thing, not a physical ability. It was a mental hurdle that I had to just overcome. And I said, I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to sleep well. You know, I'm going to stay out late if I want to. I'm going to drink if I want to. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to eat what I normally eat. I'm going to drink coffee. I'm going to brush my teeth. These are all things that normally you would, th you know, with a strategy, you'd probably stay away from. But it's kind of what I had been doing over the last year or two or three years, my whole career. And so I figured we'll stay consistent and it's all mental and I'm going to pass. So I fly into Aspen. I take, uh, I, you know, check in and I came two days early because obviously with the last two issues, I figured let's be prudent. We'll right. invest a bit more. We'll come a bit <laughs> early, uh, which was wise uh, because I needed time to acclimate too. So um, I went up the first, uh, like one flight of stairs with my backpack and my luggage. And I was like completely out of breath. Wow. It was crazy. Um, but over the next two days, I drink a ton of water. Uh, but yeah, I drank, you know, I stayed up later. Uh, I had coffee. I brought my cereal and, and my almond milk. And that's why I have for breakfast. Right. You know, I just did all the normal stuff, brushed my teeth. And I walked into this room and it was this beautiful alcove, um, sitting there, you know, it was at the, in at the little Nell, which is just a beautiful property. Um, obviously I couldn't stay at it. I had to stay at a cheaper one around the corner, <laughs> but that's, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, uh, but I walk in there, I got three of the most senior master sommeliers because when you're on the verge of a reset, if I had failed, I'd have to start over and I have to do all three parts again. Right. So they want to make sure everything is graded as accurately as possible. So they put people in there that have done this many times to make sure you know, that, that everything is accurate, you know, uh, cause it, it means a lot and they want to have that accountability. Um, so I sit down and the sun's shining in through the window and I'm looking at these glasses and you got these three, you know, Titans, you know, at the table with me to, to, to judge my every word, but I'm in the zone, you know, and it's like, uh, they call it the flow state, right? And I'm just focused and I'm just going to do it. 
So you got 25 minutes, six wines. Um, and uh, the first wine, you know, you want to spend, you know, four and a half minutes maybe on. I'm like six and a half minutes in on the first wine. <laughs> totally ruining my time control, all of that. And I'm going back and forth. I'm hemming and hawing between uh, Chablis and Muscadet. And I'm, I'm trying so hard to make it be Chablis. I really am because I love it. And I can't do it. And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm going to call it Muscadet. And I'm going through these wines. And there were a couple others. You know, one was really, really old Italian. And you're like, is it Brollo? Is it old Brunello? Is it Brollo? Is it Brunello? A really difficult thing to tell. And then the last one was, um, it smelled earthy, Cabernet for sure. And you're like, is this Bordeaux? Is this left bank Bordeaux? But it was quite old also. And uh, I'm like, man. So I made these crazy calls. I'm like just gut checking myself. And I'm like, this is, uh, you know, it's Barolo, it's Muscadet, it's uh, it's an uh, old Napa Valley cab from like Howell Mountain, you know. Um, so then after, you know, you finish and it's kind of a bit of a whirlwind and you're like Will Ferrell in the debate of old school. You just come <laughs> out of it and you're like, whoa, what just happened? And um, they're like, go get a drink. And so then you start the mental stuff and you're like, a drink. What do I need a drink? It's like 10 a.m. Did I do that poorly? Right. Or is that like celebratory? What did I, did I do well or not do well? What, I am, what am I ordering? <laughs> yes, I don't even know. So at the end of the day, you know, candidates are getting together and they're talking. And so you're like, hey, chances are we have the same flight. What'd you call? You know, when it's all said and done, nobody, everybody's right. taking it. And so you're like, okay, what'd you call? And they're like, oh, I call Chablis for sure. I call Brunello, Brunello, and I call Bordeaux. And I'm like, I didn't call any of those things. Right. So then I'm like, well, let me find someone that runs a very famous Italian program. You know, one of the best Italian lists in the city. All they do is drink Br Brunello and Brollo. What'd you call? Like, oh yeah, old Brunello for sure. And I'm like, well, I definitely call Brollo. Yeah. I'm like, let me ask a Napa guy. And he's like, oh yeah, I called, I called, I called Bordeaux for sure. Right. And I'm like, I am so screwed. <laughs> I'm about to reset. And it was great because at that point I said to myself, you know what, Alex, this test doesn't define you. You're already very successful. You know, you have your restaurant and you've accomplished a lot and you make great money. And you know, at that point you're doing it for yourself anyway. You're not really doing right. it for more opportunity because even if like Southern wine and spirits called and they offered me this great job with a lot of money, cause I'm a master sommelier, which was happening a lot at that time. Um, I wasn't going to take it. It wouldn't change anything for me. Right. So I was doing it for myself and I said, with pass or fail, you still feel good about yourself. So, you know, don't let it define you. This test, you're more than this test. This is a part of, your tapestry, but it's not, it's not everything. So, um, you know, then I get into the room and they give me my results. Um, and he's like slow playing it a bit. And he's like, you know, you're supposed to demonstrate mastery and you're here and you've done this. This isn't your first try. And this is your third time. And you should know, and you're sitting down in front of me and you're telling me, you don't know the difference between Chablis and Muscadet. And you've used like seven minutes trying to figure this out. Like, do you think that demonstrates mastery? And you're like, and then like, and then they're going through it and they're like, Brunello and Barolo. I mean, I get it. They're from the same country. Right. But, and then let's talk about your craziest decision. You're telling me you don't know the difference between Napa Valley Cabernet and Bordeaux. Really? And I'm starting to feel a little defensive. Right. I'm like, come on. But it's like, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. And so I start justifying myself a little bit. And he's like, yeah, I know. That's why you passed. 
Yeah. And so it was right then that 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 I realized uh, that I had passed. But I was only one or two people that passed tasting that year. Yeah. You know, it was pretty challenging. So I felt I felt good about that. But it was, uh, you That's know, there's a, there's a lot of, it's a it's a very difficult exam. Not only in the challenges, but it lays you bare emotionally. And I've seen so many very, very talented individuals that are extremely successful, but the sacrifices that are necessary to pass that exam are not that different from the sacrifices necessary to be successful in the restaurant industry. And you spend, you know, an entire year, you get one shot a year at this exam and you sacrifice time with loved ones and family members and vacations and other hobbies and things you want to experience in this world to be ready for that moment. And then you find out you don't pass and uh, you see everything from, uh, you know, just utter breakdown of sadness to rage to, you know, everything in between. It's just, yeah. you know, it's intense. It's uh, I think it's a perfect way to end this uh, this conversation because again I think that through line is um, is obvious here that idea of grit and perseverance and persistence and you know uh, being willing to kind of like roll with it and change it when it needs to change and you know rely on what's working when it's working and all of that. Um, before I let you go, um, uh, what's uh, what's a piece of advice you'd give to someone looking to open their first restaurant? What, what's something you know now but you didn't know then? What, what would you pass along? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how much I've learned. You know, I'll give a, give a couple things that I think are absolutely key that you can't, you know, you can't do without. Uh, I think a lot of restaurants are closed before they even open based on the lease that they've signed. You know, uh, the reason why my restaurants are still successful and still in operation is not because I'm great or my partners are great or we had the perfect idea. It's because when we wrote this plan, when, when we came up with this, we, did, we made sure that that lease allowed us uh, the space that we didn't have to be great and we honestly didn't even have to be good. We just had to be average or slightly above to make a business. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people sign these leases or invest all this money saying, we're going to knock it out of the park, blah, blah, blah. If you plan around that, you will fail. Yeah. Because that is highly, highly unlikely. Okay. So don't, don't plan that way. You have to plan to be, you know, you don't know where the economy is going. You don't know where the neighborhood's going. There's so many things out of your control in this industry. You know, one line breaks in front of your restaurant and the whole street's closed. And like, these are things you cannot control. Yeah, for sure. No matter how great of an operator you are, you can't plan around those things. Um, the other thing is find and negotiate the strongest partnership you can. You know, a lot of restaurants fail because that partnership breaks. Um, you have to have a very good lawyer and you have to really uh, define, you know, different measurements of what these responsibilities are and what needs to be achieved for each partner so that they can be measured and quantified to make sure everybody's pulling their weight. I know many partnerships where they have partners that are absentee, but they can't get rid of them. There's no way to get rid of them. And they're not, they're not adding to the business at all. They're dragging it down like an anchor. So you have to have a, a partnership where when things get tough and they will get really tough, and sometimes they get so tough that if they weren't a partner, they would quit. And even if they are a partner, they may quit. But that's why you have to make it so that so difficult for someone to quit you have to make sure that they're so invested. Either they've invested a certain amount of money 
or that, you know, that, that contract that's been signed with that partnership makes it so tough for them to quit that that that's not an option. It's kind of like a general that, you know, leads his army to battle, uh, you know, across the sea and then he burns the boats. There's no, there's no way back. I always love the analogy. You know, like this is it. You are here. You are committed, you know, and um, if, cause if they can quit, they will and they'll leave you no matter how good of friends you are or whatever, because it's tough, you know, restaurants, restaurants will lay you bare, you know, for sure. And then, um, you know, the last, the last thing I would say, try not to sign any agreements with vendors that require a, a personal guarantee, but B, uh, and, and not everybody will let you, you know, uh, big companies, uh, that hold products that they know you need, like liquor, there, you're going to probably have to sign a personal guarantee for some of those. But um, the other thing is like multi-year contracts, like linen, like garbage. These things, you know, once you sign those contracts, it's very difficult to get out of, you know, and always be negotiating for better pricing. Think outside the box on how to, how to get the best pricing with vendors. Yeah. I think it's uh, I think it's really good advice. I think it's as good a place as any to end it. Uh, I'll leave you here. Where um, where can people learn more about your restaurants? Where can they find your restaurants? Where they where can they connect with you? Learn more about you? Yeah, well, so I'm based out of New York, uh, and um, you know, soon we'll be in Miami. Uh, but the best way really is to uh, to to reach out via that that infamous internet. Uh, you can find the restaurants at www.atriumdumbo.com and www.beastsandbottles, all spelled out, uh, .com. Um, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Perfect. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to sit down and chat with me. I appreciate the honesty, and I think the people uh, listening will certainly appreciate that as well. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me, Chip. I want to thank uh, all of you for sticking around to the end. Hopefully you got a lot out of that conversation. Uh, I mentioned it a couple of times throughout the interview, but even as I went back and listened to the whole thing, I'm struck by this idea of grit about, you know, what it means for those of us uh, who have made a career in hospitality. And so this week, your assignment and your continuing education are kind of all wrapped up in one. So for your assignment, I want you to identify one thing you've been putting off and come up with a plan to complete it. So for Alex, it was finding a way to pass the MS exam, but it could be something totally inane. For example, maybe you've been complaining about the shelves being disorganized in your restaurant office. So stop putting it off. Make a commitment to organize the damn office this week. Carve out the time, make a plan, and get it done. That's what grit is. It's not finding the time. It's about making the time. It's about finding ways, figuring out ways to get something completed. Then, for continuing education, I'm going to recommend a book by Angela Duckworth. It's called Grit. There's a link in the show notes, so you can go ahead and grab your own copy. It's an incredible read all about the power of persistence and how it affects not only our long-term ambitions, but our short-term outlook on a daily basis. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you have a second, go ahead and give us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can do that on either Apple or Stitcher. I appreciate you being here. And as always, I look forward to next week. Until then, take care. Take care.